Before ancient Rome became the Rome that we think of, with its Colosseum and gladiators and Caesars and emperors, and its territory stretching from England to Morocco to Syria to Turkey, it was just another tribe fighting for survival. But by the 440s BC, many of the foundational Roman events had already taken place. They had expelled their king in favor of a republic. The oligarchs that ran the republic, the patricians, had already given up some of their power to the lower class, the plebeians, creating a somewhat more balanced society. And perhaps the most famous citizen of the early Roman Republic, Cincinnatus, who George Washington was compared to, had already been given the dictatorship and then relinquished it voluntarily. One of these patricians, Marcus Furius Camillus, would be so important to the establishment of Rome as a real power that he was called by his contemporaries the father of his country and the second founder of Rome. This is the Almost Forgotten. Hello everyone and welcome to the Almost Forgotten, episode 1.1, Marcus Furius Camillus. The podcast focuses on the lives and times of great historical figures that have mostly fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. We may have heard of these people, but they don't get the same kind of attention that some others do. Here, they get their due. My name is Charlie, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I was inspired to do this after listening to some truly wonderful history podcasts. Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and Revolutions, Robin Pierce's The History of Byzantium, and Dan Carlin's Hardcore History all deserve credit, among others, for getting me here. Without further ado, back to the episode. Marcus Furius Camillus was born in 446 BC, a member of the Furii family who had been leading citizens of a nearby Latin city. Their alliance with Rome was close enough that they, along with other families, soon became part of the oligarchy of Rome. At this point, Rome had established themselves as a local power, settling the lands outside of the city, repeatedly defeating, although not able to completely subdue, their local tribal enemies. They were essentially a strong city-state, with a ruling class rather than a king, their power in the region limited. In other parts of Italy, especially to the south, colonies of Greek city-states brought news of the real regional powers, Athens and Sparta, who recently had defeated the Achaemenid Persian invaders, Pericles was the leading citizen in Athens, and the Peloponnesian War was just over a decade away. Over in the Persian Empire, Egyptian revolts were finally put down after the peace treaty ended Athens' funding of the rebels. Nehemiah, a Jewish leader and a cupbearer to the emperor Artaxerxes I, the son of Xerxes, was sent to Jerusalem to rebuild the city's walls and govern the province. In China, the spring and autumn period was giving way to the Warring States period. In India, Buddhism and Jainism were only a few decades old and, similar to China, various kingdoms fought for supremacy. In America, the Olmec were still 50 years away from their decline and the Zapotecs were still about 50 years before their rise, perhaps as the Romans struggling to establish themselves among the other local tribes. In Africa, the Kushite Empire was centered on Meroe. It was still relatively strong after being forced out of Egypt, which they had ruled for a while, until a few centuries prior. Closer to home, another city-state was a constant threat to the Romans. Rome was situated among Etruscan cities, 
and the Roman king that the original Brutus overthrew was Etruscan. Conflict was inevitable. Battles with VA, the closest Etruscan city, were common, as were truces. The city of VA, only ten miles from Rome, was part of a loose Etruscan alliance. Etruria was less of an empire than the independent city-states of Greece were. It was more like an economic and cultural confederation. That being said, VA could potentially call on allies that Rome did not have, and was considered one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful city in the Etruscan League. The latter part of the 400s BC was not an easy time for Rome. It was, in essence, under constant attack. The Aequi and the Volsci, mountain tribes from the east, had conquered Roman allied towns in the area, and war with VA was happening on an almost annual basis, with each taking their lumps, but neither being able to conquer the other. Marcus Furius Camillus first comes into the picture when he serves in what Plutarch calls the Great Battle against the Aequi and the Volsci. It's possible that this was the Battle of Mount Algidus, which I've seen dated to both 458 BC, 14 years before Camillus was born, and 431 BC, where Camillus would have been 15 years old. It's said to have happened during the consulship of Postumius Tibertus, who held the position in 431 and 428 BC. So we could probably assume it was that 431 date and Camillus was there. Whatever the battle's name was, Camillus was wounded, taking a dart in the thigh. This didn't stop him. He ripped it out and went after the bravest of the enemy, driving them off. And if you're picturing this as kind of, I don't know, weak, the dart the sources were referring to was probably an arrow or a small spear, so give him some credit. For his valor, he was appointed as a censor, which was a position of great honor at the time. It wasn't a position of great power, but it was considered sacred, and he used his influence to try and improve the Roman state. Over the next few decades, we don't really know what Camillus did but we can assume he worked his way up the political ladder, the cursus honorum, and he almost certainly further distinguished himself in battle. It was a very hard time for Rome, the latter part of the 5th century BC, and they were beset by enemies all around. VA was still the main enemy, and another conflict with them eventually broke out. Plutarch said they had as many warriors as Rome, but had decided to end any plans of conquest, instead building up large city walls. A ten-year siege, according to the sources, started just before the turn of the century, around 406 or 405 BC. At this point, Camillus was around 40, and as a well-respected warrior and leading patrician, he was an important man now. He was a tribune at a time when tribunes were the highest authority in the Roman political world, and when Rome was a republic, patricians went and fought. Maybe it wasn't a true siege, just a decade of Rome trying to capture the city while the people of VA were always able to retreat behind the safety of their walls and ward off attacks. By this time, it was said that VA had given up its expansionist agenda after being defeated by Rome in battles. But the city remained independent, and a possible enemy at their backs if Rome wanted to expand into Tuscany. After a Roman defeat around 396 BC, Camillus was called upon to help deal with the siege. He was appointed dictator and was given total authority. He was not the most experienced commander. His older brother was passed up for the role. But he was in his 50s by now and probably had been fighting in the war. Maybe this was an attempt to change a stalled conflict with someone that had new ideas or different methods. 
While we don't know why he was appointed, it is said by Livy that his appointment changed the disposition of the troops. This may have been more of a behavioral readjustment than a morale boost, though. As Livy says, quote, His first measure was to execute military justice upon those who had fled during the panic from the camp, and he made his soldiers realize that it was not the enemy who was most to be feared, unquote. Camillus first aimed to please the gods and promised to build a shrine to a certain goddess if he were to win the war. He also made a pledge at some point to donate a tenth of the spoils of the conquests of VA to the gods. But before he could go after VA, he had to deal with the nearby cities of Felisci and Capena, who were massing an army and threatening Rome. This made a siege of VA pretty difficult, and he marched out and defeated them in short order. Quickly turning back to VA, Camillus ordered mines to be dug under the city, and the Romans tunneled in. When they got as far as the main temple in VA, the Temple of Juno, Camillus began the attack. They emerged from the tunnel, and VA was taken with an enormous amount of plunder. After a decade of war, but really centuries of on-and-off conflict, Rome had finally defeated VA once and for all. Camillus came back to the city and had a good old-fashioned Roman triumph. Well... Actually, it wasn't quite old-fashioned enough. He rode through the streets on a chariot pulled by four white horses, something that was supposed to be reserved for Jupiter himself. And they were totally expecting Jupiter any day now. Camillus was wasting the good triumph on himself. Remember, despite being ruled essentially by an oligarchy of patricians that claimed royal lineage, they were fervently anti-king and worried that when any one man had too much power popularity, and hubris all at the same time. This started some serious public distaste for Camillus, who was a great general but often found himself in the middle of political controversy. Speaking of political controversy, now the Romans needed to figure out what to do with VA. Do they raise the city? Settle it? Build a courthouse and garrison military units there until the upset citizens go away after a few turns? The tribunes proposed that half of the population of Rome should settle VA, and the plebs loved the idea. Land from conquered territory would be a mainstay of Rome's future, but this was new at the time. Many in the Senate were terrified that the idea would end Rome itself. Camillus basically filibustered and wouldn't allow the matter to even come to a vote, as he was trying to avoid any conflicts. While it stifled the argument for a time, it undermined the plebs' needs and wishes. With this, and the parade incident, fresh in everyone's mind, Camillus says, Oh yeah, remember that 10% of the plunder we promised to the gods? In the heat of our pillaging, we forgot to put it aside, so I'll be needing that back. His dictatorship had ended, and he brought the matter before the Senate, and that's what really brought the opposition against him. The difference between taking 10% in the initial sack of the city as opposed to going and taking it back from the soldiers later is not a minor one. They were able to collect the money, though, and donate it to the gods, but it wasn't helping Camillus's approval rating. In 394 BC, he still managed to get appointed as a tribune along with five others. This was a time in the Roman Republic when the tribunes were the highest authority, rather than the consuls. Without getting too into it, Due to the demands of the plebs that one of the two consuls comes from the plebeian class, they just didn't have consuls for a while, at least not any with real authority. Camillus ran Rome, along with his five compatriots, as what is known as a consular tribune. Camillus, being the leading military figure of this group, 
led an invasion force of the neighboring city of Falerii. A legendary sounding story about Camillus comes from this siege. Apparently they felt so comfortable in their defense of the city they continued to go about their normal daily activities. One schoolmaster, a Roman sympathizer, took his students closer and closer to the Roman lines for their daily exercises until one day he led them straight up to Camillus and surrendered them to him. Camillus, being of strong Roman virtue, could not accept such treachery, even if it benefited him and Rome. He said that war is harsh, but we need laws, even in war, and that a true general should win on his own merits, not on others' treachery. He sent the boys back with their tied-up schoolmaster so that they wouldn't have such innocent hostages to use to blackmail Falaria and to surrender. The people were so grateful to Camillus and so ashamed to fight against such a virtuous enemy that they would prefer submission to freedom. A fanciful story for sure, but it seems likely that the Falarii people offered terms, so some version of the capture and return of some of the city's youth could have merit. The Romans took the city without violence, which meant they took it without looting, which means no Saturnalia bonus this year. And when he returned to Rome, the measure to resettle half of Rome to VA was finally addressed, and Camillus opposed it. After this opposition to giving the plebs what they wanted, and a military victory without killing and plundering, he lost any popularity he had previously enjoyed with the plebeian class. He also lost his son to disease at this time. It was hard enough time for Camillus as it was, but then a certain Lucius Apuleius brought charges against him of embezzling the spoils from his conquests. His friends told him the people would convict him of the charges, but they would help him pay his fine. This was too much for proud Camillus, and he chose to leave Rome in exile rather than stay and be condemned. Sometime, maybe around 393 BC, he made his way to Ardea, where he lived as a private citizen. Rome, despite the victories that Camillus had given it, was not out of the woods yet. It was now a more formidable regional power, and even if it wasn't a hegemonic power over northern and central Italy, it may well have been the strongest city in that area. So, when the Gauls, who had been taking cities in northern Italy, went after the Etruscan city of Clusium, the inhabitants reached out to their Roman rivals for help. Ancient sources lead to some conflict between this happening in 390 or 387 BC, but since you're not adding it to your outlook calendar, let's just say 390 BC and move on. Rome sent ambassadors to the Gauls and demanded to know what wrongs Clusium had done to them to make them besiege the city. If this sounds ironic to you, it did to the Gauls as well. They said, hey, the people of Clusium wronged us by having territory that we want and not giving it to us, similar to how numerous people had wronged you Romans and suffered your wrath. The Roman ambassadors advised the Clusines to attack. They stuck around and aided in the attack, and a Roman named Quintus Fabius Ambustus killed one of the Gaulish leaders. The Gauls cried foul, Ambassadors don't participate in battle, that's part of the reason their safe conduct is guaranteed. And the leader Brennus demanded that the entire Fabii family be delivered to him. The barbarians are bringing up some pretty good points, actually. Despite the recognition by the Romans that the Gauls were wronged by them, the people were ready for war. 
the Fabii family, rather than being handed over, and were appointed tribunes to help lead the battle against the soon-to-be-attacking Gauls. This did not exactly calm Brennus down. How the Romans prepared for this conflict was pretty un-Roman. They did not feel threatened enough to appoint a dictator, or maybe they just had too much of a bad taste in their mouth from the recent issues with Camillus. They met the Gauls just outside of Rome, but didn't even prepare entrenchments. Remember, this was the Rome before the one we think of. These weren't the centurions with gray, silvery metal and red with a short sword and a javelin. At this time, Rome still fought in the style of the Greek phalanx, long spears pointed out in unison, very tough to defeat head-on, but utterly useless from the flanks. Not properly prepared and without enough warriors, Rome had to thin out their lines and spread wide to attempt to keep Brennus and the Gauls from outflanking them. Phalanx versus Barbarian tended to work well when the Barbarian can't get around the edge, to use the football terminology. Running up the middle just doesn't work well against the Phalanx. But the Gauls were able to get to the edge this time, and the Romans were slaughtered outside the city, where the Allia River meets the Tiber. Their left wing was driven into the river and suffered the most casualties. The right wing was able to flee. Some went back to Rome and took refuge on the Capitoline Hill, where the city's arcs, or citadel, stood. The Gauls didn't pursue immediately, and it gave the Romans time to gather what they needed, take up a defensive posture, and settle in for a long siege on the hill. Other soldiers fled to VA and tried to figure out what to do next. Brennus showed up a few days later, unable to believe that the gates of Rome were left open for his people to attack. He captured the city, but it's said that all that remained in the forum itself were old men who were former consuls, unwilling to leave the city. They were killed by the Gauls, who then began to lay siege to the Capitoline Hill. The siege lasted months, and since the Romans took their supplies up to the Arks, it was the Gauls who had to find a way to feed themselves. They sent a large force to scour the countryside for food, plundering the smaller villages, and doing those awful things that armies do. They approached Ardea, where Camillus now lived. He convinced the residents that the Gauls weren't anything special, they were more lucky than good, and he could totally take them if he just had an army. He raised a force from within Ardea, and waited inside the city walls as the Gauls approached, doing his best not to tip off the enemy of his army's presence. The Gaulish army was careless after looting the countryside. They were set upon by Camillus and his Ardean army in the middle of the night, and were soundly defeated. The news of this victory roused the Romans that had fled from the Gauls, and a sizable number had made their way to VA. They requested that Camillus return as their savior with his new army, but oh no, not good old Camillus. He wouldn't budge unless the actual Romans in actual Rome asked him for help. This left the Romans in VA in a bit of a bind. They couldn't just text the Romans on the capital line. They had to send someone in. A young middle-class plebeian, Pontus Cominius snuck into the city by wrapping himself in corks and floating across the river, which is kind of awesome to think about. He was able to make his way up the cliffs to the hill at night, and he met with the leaders. The Senate agreed to appoint Camillus dictator because, yeah, okay, whatever, just get over here with an army. Camillus, now dictator for the second time, was able to raise a large army and march towards Rome. So the guy who was exiled from Rome in large part for arguing against the resettlement of the Roman people to VA, was asked by the Roman citizens who had fled to VA to go save Rome. Okay. The Gauls, meanwhile, had discovered the place where Pontius climbed up the hill. 
Plutarch described the loosened rocks and uprooted plants. It's quite possible that Brennus learned of the whole Camillus Pontius episode by now and simply realized there must be a way in and out and went looking for it. Either way, an attack force went up the cliff at night, sneaking up on the unsuspecting Romans, probably relaxed from the complete lack of actual assaults over many months. The Romans were saved, though, by a group of sacred geese kept in the temples on the hill. Due to a lack of food during the siege, they were neglected, and probably a little scared as their numbers were diminishing, and there was an increase in the number of down pillows on the hill. They made enough noise to wake the Romans, and one Marcus Manlius, a former consul, led the charge against the attackers. They drove him off, and another stalemate set in. Negotiations began in early 389 BC, and the Romans agreed to pay thousand pounds of gold to see the Gauls leave their country. The famous story from this episode is that the Romans complained about the scales being uneven, to which Brennus threw his sword and his belt on the scales and declared, Woe to the vanquished, which probably sounds less insulting now than it did at the time. Presumably the Romans reacted somewhat like Ted Knight and Caddyshack. It's said that Camilla showed up with his army right as this was happening, although some sources claim that he came a bit earlier and prevented the Gauls from foraging for food, pushing them in their decision to end the siege. Camillus, observing the negotiations, thought, as dictator, he was the only one with authority to negotiate on behalf of Rome, and probably should get himself involved in this a bit more now. He brought his troops into the city, now under the peace of negotiations, and handed the Gauls the scales back without the gold. Possibly quoting directly from the Greyjoy family annals, Plutarch claims Camillus said, quote, It is the custom of the Romans to defend their country not with gold, but with iron, unquote. Of course, Brennus did not like that at all, not one little bit. He started to complain, but Camillus informed him that the prior negotiations were illegal. Brennus had made a treaty with someone who had no authority, namely anyone not named Marcus Furious Camillus, comma, dictator, but if you want to make some proposals now, go for it. We're all ears. And by the way, you might want to prepare for battle because, you know, I'm not bad at fighting, so I usually go for that. Brennus withdrew from the city after some skirmishing and regrouped eight miles up the road. Camillus and his army pursued them and routed them there. Although the sources say there were basically no survivors, the Sinones, the Gaulish tribe that Brennus led, actually remained in place to be enemies of Rome in northern Italy for another hundred years or so. The Romans had recaptured Rome without fully submitting to the Gauls, thanks in no small part to Camillus. His fellow soldiers began to refer to him as another Romulus, the founder of his country, and, the name that has stuck the most, the second founder of Rome. And so the people of Rome and its second founder set about rebuilding the city that had been demolished by the Gauls. And yet, just down the road there was this other city that I feel like we were just thinking about sending a bunch of people to settle in. Couldn't we just go there? Seems a lot easier to rename VA than rebuild Rome. Except, the Senate wasn't a big fan of leaving behind the tombs and monuments of their ancestors. Besides, we just found this severed head at the base of the capital, clearly an omen that Rome would become the head of Italy. We can't just leave. Picking up where they left off, before Brennus sacked the city, they went back to arguing about what to do about VA. Camillus was painted somehow as someone who was depriving them of their rights to live in a nice city like VA, instead forcing them to stay in the squalor of Rome. 
Camillus argued for rebuilding and was bolstered by a strange omen. A passing centurion told his squad to settle down here as they were ready for a break, and the crowd deliberating where to live next heard him and decided, that's it, that's the sign, we're staying. The Romans were a tad bit superstitious. Now rebuilding their city after it was destroyed by barbarian invaders, 396 BC probably wasn't considered Rome's golden age, and the Roman neighbors understood this. War began again, to the south against the Latins and the north against the Etruscans. Starting in the south, it appears that Rome had an army camped south of the city and got themselves surrounded by the Latins and the Volscians. Camillus was point, appointed dictator for now his third time and rallied an army together that included citizens past the normal age of military retirement. Camillus, under cover of night, marched his army around the enemy undetected and then signaled to the besieged Romans that he was there. They began the attack, but the Latins and Volscians dug in and tried to play defense, waiting for their own bailout from allies. Camillus decided to try and burn down the enemy's wooden palisades. He fainted with a division of his army who used ranged weapons to distract the opponent. He, with a different group, snuck around to a different part of the camp to take advantage of the prevailing winds with some sort of fiery projectiles. The Latins and the Volscians weren't close enough to that part of the wall in enough numbers to immediately notice and then put out the flames, and their palisades started to burn. They were forced into a corner of their camp with no choice but to rush out and attack. It did not go well for them, and this threat to Rome was eliminated. After mopping up some more Latin towns and sacking Aqui, Camillus marched north to Etruria. The city of Sutrium was either in revolt or had been captured by the Etruscans, or something. But Camillus arrived just as the city was being handed over, or surrendering to the Etruscans, or whatever it was. It was fortuitous timing, as the Etruscans were not in a defensive mode, thinking they had just taken the city and had no enemies present. Sutrium was quickly taken, for the second time that day, this time by Rome. Camillus had defeated the enemies to the north and the south in a short period of time, he was awarded another triumph, and his popularity was finally enough to keep most people quiet about the issues they had brought up in the past. But not everyone. The famous Marcus Manlius, a true hero from the Siege of Rome, who led that defense of the Capitoline Hill, was a little jealous of Camillus. Manlius, who was now called Marcus Manlius Capitolinus, did not want to be only the second biggest hero of the city, and accused Camillus of trying to make himself king again. Livy said of Manlius, quote, Full of pride and presumption, he looked down upon the foremost men with scorn. One in particular he regarded with envious eyes, a man conspicuous for his distinctions and his merits, Marcus Furius Camillus. He bitterly resented this man's unique position amongst the magistrates and in the affections of the army, and declared that, he was now such a superior person that he treated those who had been appointed under the same auspices as himself, not as his colleagues, but as his servants, unquote. Okay, if all we've heard about Camillus is true, this particular accusation might not have been so unfounded. Camillus led all the military victories the city had had for a decade or so. He was dictator three times already, he was a military tribune, which was like a five- or six-man consulship. 
four times at this point. He was already the most powerful man in Rome. Maybe he was a little haughty about it. But his fellow patricians weren't interested in what Manlius was selling. So in 385 BC, Manlius rallied the plebs. He got citizens who had debt and those in prison to start rioting in the forum. The Senate appointed a dictator who sent Manlius to prison, but the people went into mourning, so he was acquitted. After his release, things were quiet at first, and Camillus was appointed to his fifth tribuneship. Things soon got worse as Manlius further roused the plebs into what was turning into open revolt. He told them that dictatorships and consulships should be leveled to the ground, that debts should be stopped, and that... Oh, yeah, since you call me the patron of the plebs and you're looking for someone to lead you, well, I mean, I don't know, I'm flat. Okay, I'll do it. The patricians were scared to death, of course, and decided another trial was needed. First, they tried him in the normal place in view of the Capitoline Hill. Manlius was all like, hey, that's the place where I totally saved Rome, remember? So Camillus had the trial moved to outside of the city gates. Manlius was convicted of trying to make himself king and was executed in 384 BC. He's a bit of a footnote in the Camillus story, but he's so interesting because he was a patrician who tried to seize power thanks to popular support from the plebs. He was about 300 years ahead of his time when guys like Marius, Sulla, and Julius Caesar used the plebs to solidify their absolute power, which, in no small part, contributed to the end of the Republic. Camillus's next adventure came when he was appointed tribune for the sixth time, around 378 BC. Rival Latin tribes, including the pesky Volscians again, were attacking Roman allies. He was physically ill and getting too damn old for this, but the people told him he could lead the military without actually fighting, they just wanted his brilliant mind. He was around 66 years old, and he agreed that his mind was pretty brilliant, so he joined the army under the leadership of Lucius Furius, possibly his son or nephew. Lucius was itching to go into battle at a time that Camillus thought unwise, but Camillus, sick and laid up on a bed, didn't oppose the decision, lest it seem like he was trying to take someone else's glory away. When the Romans lost the battle and began to retreat, Camillus jumped up from his sickbed and led the retreating soldiers back to the field. They stopped the enemy advance, and the day only ended up as a defeat rather than a complete rout. The next day, Camillus and the Romans recovered from their defeat and turned the tables, defeating their Latin enemies more soundly and taking their camp. He followed this up by retaking the town of Satria, which had been captured by the Etruscans. Returning to Rome and proving that, hey, older people can still do things, he was asked to combat a new threat. The people of Tusculum were rebelling against Rome. It was still during his sixth tribuneship, so let's assume it was still 378 BC. Now, Tusculum was probably where Camillus's family was from, and it was often allied with Rome, but this time it appeared they had other ideas. He chose Lucius Furius to give the kid a chance to clear up his good name. When they showed up, the people of Tusculum were tending to their fields, the city gates were open. The city leaders showed the Romans where they could stay for the night. And they were like, insurrection? What insurrection? Oh, you must not be thinking of Tusculum. We hear there's a schmushculum down the way. Maybe that's where you're thinking? Camillus gave him the stink eye, but said that if they went to Rome and begged for forgiveness, he'd think about not stabbing anybody. The Senate, with Camillus's urging, allowed them to escape punishment and re-enter the Roman fold. 
After this sixth time as a tribune, he was really ready to finally retire, and he did for a while, but he was eventually dragged back in. The plebeians were still causing trouble, and the patricians named him dictator once again about ten years later in 368 BC. At this point, he was in his mid to late 70s. The plebs wanted the consuls reinstated as leaders of the state, and they wanted one of those consuls to be a plebeian. They were led by Licinius Stolo, a nouveau riche pleb, and they demanded change. Camillus thought he'd counter this action by calling for a military muster on the field of Mars during voting. Probably nothing more than a delaying tactic, but it backfired and the people became incensed with him once again. Rather than risk another exile, his fourth time as dictator quickly ended with his resignation. Another dictator was named, and this man appointed Stolo his master of the horse. Stolo was able to pass an anti-patrician law limiting the amount of land one could hold. He was eventually convicted of breaking it. But while the consular issue was still not resolved, another threat loomed. The Gauls were back. In 367 BC, they were once again threatening Rome, this time from the south. The consul problem was put aside for the moment, and Camillus was named dictator for the fifth time, something truly unprecedented which wasn't matched by anyone until Julius Caesar. Camillus at this point instituted some sort of military reform. We don't know how extensive it truly was, but Plutarch says that he knew how the Gauls fought and sought to counter their strengths. Since they used swords, but just tried to bash everyone with them, Camillus had Roman helmets modified to better absorb these blows. He added brass rims to the shields as well, and he instructed the Romans to use long pikes and thrust them forward to absorb the sword swings. But the Romans were already using phalanx formations, so what was different about this is kind of unclear. Camillus came upon the Gauls, rich with plunder, near the Anio River, but did not attack. Rather, he hit a large group of his forces in the nearby valleys, while his smaller group of traditionally armed soldiers built fortifications on the hill. He sent this light force in to harry the Gauls at a time that they weren't in proper order, to keep them from easily forming ranks. While this was happening, his larger force set upon them with their long pikes and new helmets. The Gaulish swords were not high quality, and many bent upon striking the smoothly rounded helmets and metal rim shields of the Romans. The Gauls could do nothing but try to grab at the pikes and fight back with them, at which point the Romans cut them down with their swords. Whether or not he had truly defeated the Gauls in Rome earlier, or just took advantage of the negotiations, this time was a real victory against what was considered an existential threat to Rome, and the last victory of Camillus's career. He was not, however, finished as a dictator. After this victory, the people were ready to address the whole consul issue, and the patricians would not let him resign his post. The people weren't happy with him, and he was physically threatened, perhaps even roughed up a bit, before he called the Senate together to put an end to the issue. They gave the people what they wanted by agreeing that one of the consuls should always be a plebeian. After this, the people cheered him in the Senate, overjoyed with this concession. The following year, in 365 B.C., a plague of some sort invaded the city, and Camillus died. He was around 80 years old, had held five dictatorships, had four military triumphs, and was a tribune six times. He captured V.A., Rome's greatest enemy for a century. He defeated the Gauls twice, 
the Latins more times than that, and he helped end a major class conflict. Livy said of him, quote, He was, it may be truly said, an exceptional man in every change of fortune, before he went into exile, foremost in peace and war, rendered still more illustrious when actually in exile by the regret which the state felt for his loss. After being restored to his country, he restored his country's fortunes together with his own. For five and twenty years after this, he lived fully up to his reputation and was counted worthy to be named next to Romulus as the second founder of the city." Unquote. He was the Roman Republic's greatest hero of an early age, a man held in as high regard as Scipio Africanus and others later would be. Camillus was a patrician through and through and stood against the plebs on many issues. He was a great military leader and a politician who put honor and tradition above all else, including the livelihood of the plebs, and one of the main reasons Rome survived into the mid-fourth century. Camillus is somewhat forgotten today, but every Roman for a thousand years would have known about the second founder of the city. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Tune in to our next episode when we move over 4,000 miles east and a generation or two later and learn about a man who united a subcontinent. <laughs>